it made me realize how important it is to not waste my time doing things that I didn't love doing. Be very clear right from the very beginning. The farther you go along, the more you'll realize just what you can outsource and what you have to keep for yourself. I think it's very important to push yourself to do that sort of stuff, especially if you're a solo printer. That is how you're going to find the clients that pay the best. And as they say, the rest is history. Welcome to the Nomad Solopreneur Show, the only podcast where you learn how to build and grow a one-person business while traveling the world. I'm your host, Gabe Marushka, and every Thursday, solopreneurs and nomads will share their inspiring stories, and I will challenge them to build solutions to real-life problems freelancers and 9 to fivers are facing on their road to freedom. In today's episode, I have the pleasure to host Molly Sevrier, who has been a solopreneur for five years. Her journey began when she decided to leave her career in fashion behind to pursue her dream of living and working in France. Since then, she has successfully built a native English content creation boutique, co-authored and published a book, and has been a part of several other business ventures. Before we start, make sure to subscribe to the free three newsletter at gabe.li newsletter, where every Tuesday you will get a two minutes read email that will help you go from freelancing to solopreneurship. If you like this podcast, I guarantee you'll love the newsletter. Without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for the lovely introduction. My pleasure. Since we record all these episodes online, uh, please tell our listeners where are you recording from today? I am recording from Rhode Island in the United States. A lot of people have never heard of it, but it's we're nestled in between Boston and New York, and it's actually the smallest state in the United States. That's cool, and to be in the smallest state, I'm actually from the smallest county in Romania. So you get the idea. I'm uh, taking the call from Da Nang, Vietnam. So we are literally, I think, 12 hours apart. I think so. It's 8 p.m. for me, and I believe it's 8 a.m. for you. Exactly <laughs> correct. <laughs> I mean, that's the life of a solo printer, trying to make it work in between different time zones. It's definitely a part of the, a part of the job. Yeah, definitely. And uh, speaking of solopreneurship, I know that you usually live in France. Mm-hmm. How did you end up there? So my France story is a long one. I have to take it back to 2012, which is hard to believe that's almost 11 years ago. But I went to France for the first time when I was doing my study abroad semester, something that at the time I never expected to do. I was 20. I did not have a passport. I had never left the country, not even to go to Canada or Mexico. And I was just very comfortable in my small little life in Rhode Island. I went to university 20 minutes away from where I grew up, and I was very happily coerced by a study abroad advisor to consider it. And I think it was something that subconsciously I really wanted to do because it took a all of 20 seconds to convince me to say yes. So I did. I ended up going to Paris for a semester because as you mentioned at the time, I was studying fashion and Paris is a wonderful city to go for that. I fell completely in love with France and with Paris and with the lifestyle, just really the slowness of living there that is kind of hard to find in the United States. Even though I'm from the smallest state and a very small town within the smallest state, there's still this very much American go sort of attitude. So I had a wonderful time for those six months, but I ended up going back to the United States to finish my undergraduate degree. And to be honest with you, 
Paris kind of felt like a very distant memory to me. But deep inside, I knew that I wanted to go back someday. And I kept saying that I want to go back someday. I want to go back someday. And so after I finished my degree in fashion, I got a job, my, my dream job. I was a buyer at this luxury boutique. I was going on trips back and forth to Manhattan. And so from the outside, I think I looked like I was living my dream life, but I just was not satisfied at all. I went into work and I was miserable every day. And one of those miserable days, I was on Facebook when I should have been working. And I, this girl that I had studied abroad with popped up and I knew that she had ended up staying in France after our semester. She never went back to the United States and she was working as an au pair, which for those of you who aren't familiar with, it's like a live-in nanny position. And so I messaged her, very curious, how did you do this? Would you recommend that I do it's something that I try? And she did immediately. And then coincidentally, she was planning on leaving her current position in two or three months. And again, it took about 20 seconds for me to decide that I would be happy to take over her position. These were the days before Zoom. So I had a Skype meeting with the family. We talked for maybe 30 minutes and it was all decided I was going to go. And it was only supposed to be for a year. The year went by. I did not want to go back to the United States. And I still really wasn't sure what I wanted to do because at that point I knew that I did not want to do fashion anymore. So I extended my contract for another year and then another six months. And then at that point, I was tired of babysitting. So I decided to go back to school. And I did that. I ended up getting my master's in Paris. It was a bilingual program. And it was focused on literature. Because I've always been very passionate about writing. And it's something that I've always loved to do for fun. And the more I started thinking about what do what is my passion? What do I want to do with that? It kept coming back to writing. So I found this wonderful program. And I completed it. And from there on out, I started my solopreneur journey. And as you mentioned, that was five years ago. So that's how I ended up in France. It's quite a journey. And uh, it's kind of sound familiar with going in a full-time job in uh, an industry that you study and realizing that you follow someone else's dream or even that you're passionate about fashion. What was the thing that actually triggered that? I don't like this job this is not the thing that I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. So I, I had always had an interest in fashion and I'll be honest, I, I loved my degree. It was very focused. The first few years was very, fo were very focused on the historical side of fashion, which I think a lot of people don't really think about, but that really was something that really interested me. And then I decided to go down the more, I guess, business focused aspect of fashion. So I've always had an interest in business and being an entrepreneur. And we'll talk more about that later. But I think the biggest thing for me was there's kind of the stereotype of working in fashion. We most of us have seen movies like The Devil Wears Prada. It's very intense. And I'm a firm believer in that you need to have a certain type of personality to really excel in that industry. And it's just not one that I have. And I learned that pretty early on. You have to be very sort of cutthroat and aggressive. And those words just do not describe me at all. So it was that. And then I think it was also a Part of it was the place where I was working. I didn't feel very supported by my boss. I felt like I didn't have room to grow. I just felt very stagnant. And at the time, I felt like the only way to get out of those feelings was to just stop and do something completely different. And it was scary at the time, but I don't regret it. Yeah, I bet because usually it's that thing like 
if you realize that early on that it's something's not for you and you make the leap, you simply realize that is one of the best decisions that you can ever make. And fast forwarding to France, after you finish your studies and start your entrepreneurship journey, how was the transition? How do you realize that, okay, I don't want to work on a full-time job or taking on things, the correct path to climb the ladder into this new venture of writing, but how was that first step? Because that's usually the thing that a lot of aspiring solopreneurs are facing. So it actually involves a lot of separate first steps. So when I was doing my master's degree, I worked alongside of it. And it, that was the first time I really did like remote work, which I think is a great stepping stone into becoming an entrepreneur or a solopreneur. It made me realize that I didn't have to go into an office. It made me realize that I didn't have to work nine to five. It made me realize that I could make my own schedule, that I could work wherever I had an internet connection. And so that was like, I think the first kind of realization that made me think to myself, okay, so there are other things out there. I don't have to follow this like path where the steps are lined out in front of me. I began by doing a lot of remote work, but more like small gigs. So like I did a lot of administrative work in the beginning. I did a lot of personal assistant, virtual assistant work in the beginning. And I stayed in that for quite some time. I did that for two or three years before I felt that I could do something beyond that. And actually something very personal to me, I think happened, but I think a lot of people could maybe learn a lesson from what I went through. I grew up very close to my grandmother. I never had a babysitter. I never went to daycare. I was with her every single day. So she's more of like a parent to me. And she sadly passed away a few years ago. Of course, it was very painful. But the silver lining of that experience was it made me realize that life is short. We are only here for a certain amount of days, months, years. It made me realize how important it is to not waste my time doing things that I didn't love doing. And yes, it was very scary for me to say, I don't want to be an assistant anymore. I don't want to work in administration anymore. I want to really focus in on my craft, which is writing, which is content creation. And it took that really traumatic event to make me say, okay, I'm, I need to do what I want to do because before you know it, my life is going to be over. So it sounds very dramatic, <laughs> but that was really the push I needed to make the jump and that transition from working for other people from nine to five, working for other people on a remote schedule where I could kind of do whatever I wanted to working for myself and only myself and of course my clients. But it was that scary moment right before, as soon as you make that jump, it just almost disappears. And what I was left with was just this comfort that, okay, you are going after something that is really important to you that you know is going to make your life better. And it was like, as soon as I did that, the floodgates opened and I was getting honestly more work than I could have hoped and imagined for. And I was able, that gave me the ability to say no to certain things, which I felt like I never had that luxury in the past. So yeah, it was a lot of baby steps that led up to that one moment of just letting go of this fear of not succeeding and just saying, this is what I want to do and I'm ready to do it. And it was almost as if the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, heard me. And as they say, the rest is history. That's something interesting about human behavior, because 
usually we don't jump into something that it's apparently scary without an exterior factor. I want to go a bit in more details on this transition, because you mentioned that you did a lot of administrative work, a lot of VA work, and even that you had this degree in writing and was your passion. And I'm sure that a lot of those listening can relate to this because are passionate or have an expertise in certain field, but it's much more easier for them to probably get clients doing other stuff. Was the case for me as well. When I started, I had a passion for the websites, but I was like doing some sort of graphic design, like removing background for photos, like doing small logo work and stuff like that at the beginning. Until I realized like why I'm doing this because I'm not passionate about, it's not what I love doing moving forward. And in your case, I want to know how that amount of clients just come right at you. How did you position yourself in order to attract them? Because of course, we all know it's not magic. It's not just happening. It's more about how you position yourself and how people find you and how that process look like for you. I don't want to, I'm saying this to you right now, very calm and collected, but it was very scary. It was very scary. And Again, maybe this is something that's very personal to me, but I think it could apply to a lot of other people. Every time that I was scared to make a decision and I decided to just go for it, the best things happened. So it was this, it was when I decided at the last minute to study abroad. It was when I decided at the last minute to leave my job, my nine to five and become a live-in nanny. And the same thing when I decided that I was going to go back to school. I could keep going on and on, but I will say those in-between steps that I took, so doing the admin work, doing the personal and virtual assistant work, that helped me create these relationships with people who went on to become my writing clients. So as you say, it isn't magic, but what I found a lot of my admin clients, a lot of my virtual assistant clients, I started writing for them a little bit. As I was also doing the personal assistant work, as I was also doing the admin work to kind of, I guess, show my, show them my stuff. And it was really when I put my boundary up and I said, thank you for all the opportunities you've given me with the personal assistant, virtual assistant admin work, but I'm shifting, I'm pivoting, and I'm really focusing in on the content creation, on the written work. So I would love to continue to work with you in that capacity if that's something that you're interested in. And 95% of the people said yes, and I still work with them to this day. I think it's very important to understand that, yes, a quick transition is possible, but you do, there are certain building blocks that you need to kind of create for yourself before you take that really that big jump and say, okay, I'm focusing in on this one thing. I'm not going to say yes to doing these graphic design projects that don't interest me. Like I'm going to really just hone in and do what I know I'm best at or that I know that I'm passionate about. But you should definitely have relationships in place, I think, before you do make that big jump because you don't want to just jump out into the void, right? That's irresponsible and not many people have the ability to do that. So I will say it was like all of the pre-work I was doing to get the clients that I now still work with today. Mentioned two important things there. First of all, that building block, the relationships, which are so important when it comes to being a self-employed. Without those relationships, without networking, without building trust with not only with your clients, but with people that you surround yourself with, it's so hard otherwise to actually get something on the ground. And another thing that you talk about is working with those clients 
it builds confidence that, okay, I can land clients. And secondly, you actually show them that you can do something else, which is extremely important because usually what I notice, and I'm guilty of this as well, at the beginning, I was like, oh, I'm just doing this thing. And actually, those clients are needing help with a lot of things. And simply sometimes by asking, what's the other thing that you need help with? Maybe I know someone or maybe I can help. And in your case, it was actually something that you could do, the content creation. And after that, taking that step further and actually doing just the thing that you actually want to do long term is not only extremely courageous for you to do that, but in the same time, it's the best thing you can do in order to actually advance in your career. And especially when you're self-employed and you don't have a set of paths to take, you just realize, okay, this is the thing that I want to do. And this is the thing that I want to help with. All the other things I'll be set aside. And speaking of this type of boundaries, because this is something that a lot of self-employed struggle with, like literally setting boundaries. I do only these things and these are the things that I want you to look at, or maybe these are the terms that I work on to have certain things that you use in a way to not clients climb on you. Like, I want to do this in my terms, even that I hire you and so on. How do you manage these boundaries and how do you set them up? So it's definitely the something that I had to learn the hard way, which I think a lot of solopreneurs, entrepreneurs do have to learn the hard way. There's this misconception that if you're self-employed, if you're a solopreneur, you're all on your own. And in, in many ways you are, but in a lot of other ways, you, like you mentioned, you need to network, you need to talk to people. And most of the work that I have is word of mouth because someone worked with me and they had a really great experience. And so they pass my name to someone else who might have some content or marketing needs. But for me, for boundaries, it's... My biggest advice is to be very clear right from the very beginning, from your first interaction with whoever you're going to be working with, and to not be afraid to remind the person of your boundaries if they cross it. If they do it multiple times, then to also not be afraid to end that working relationship if you have to. And that can also be very scary, especially if you're a freelancer or you're a solopreneur, because you know, every client counts, every invoice counts. But I do definitely just want to encourage other people who hope to be a solopreneur or are already a solopreneur to stay firm with your boundaries, to not be afraid to defend yourself and to not be afraid to defend those boundaries and to cut those ties if they're crossed too many times. And that's very personal to you. Some people are like, well, if you cross me once, then it's all over. Other people are like, well, if you cross me three times, then it's over. So that's, again, a very personal choice. But I just, no matter what your industry is, no matter what your personality is, because I think that's another important factor as well. There are some people who maybe are taken advantage of more easily than others, is to just stay firm. As hard as it is, you might be working with this client. My situation, an example would be that we agreed to four articles in a month and one email newsletter, and they send me an, a, ma a message on Slack or a last minute email saying, oh, would you mind writing this social media post for me too? If you say well, yes once, you're setting yourself up to say yes over and over. I know it's difficult. And to be honest with you, it's something that I'm still working on myself and I'm still learning every single day. But one thing that I've seen works is the most effective is being very firm and sticking to your boundaries. And there is one example that I can you give 
of something that you simply cannot accept? Well, again, this is, I guess, personal to my situation. In the very beginning, when I was very much like I'm shifting gears, I don't want to do the personal assistant stuff anymore. I don't want to do the admin stuff anymore. A few of the people I was working with would try to sneak in little things like, can you just do this one thing for me? Or can you just, it's not going to take too much time. Can't you just do this small admin project for me? I refuse. I refuse. Even if they say, oh, I'll pay you this much or it won't take too much of your time. I just, I refuse. And I guess another example I would have that is maybe less specific to me is like, if someone, if we set a deadline and we agreed to a certain deadline and someone tries to change that deadline, I always refuse. I always refuse. And it's also something that I learned very early late, I think, to the game, the importance of terms and conditions, even when you're a freelancer, even when you're a solopreneur, even if you're all on your own, and you're doing some sort of gig work, terms and conditions are essential. And it can be very, they can be very simple. There's plenty of free templates that you can find online, you can create them yourself. But before you start any sort of new client work, you need to come up with those terms and conditions and both parties must sign it. And if, if the client wants to do something outside of those terms and conditions, that's another conversation. But it's very important. And I feel like no one really talks about terms and conditions very often in the world of this entrepreneurship. But I wish someone would have told me. (laughs) So I'm hoping that this advice helps one of your listeners so they don't end up wasting several years of not coming up with your terms and conditions. Definitely. I'm extremely happy that you mentioned that because it's one of the things that saved my skin so many times. And just having that small contracts or terms of conditions sign up between the parties, once they will show to your clients that you're a professional, you're not just a random guy that is doing some sort of work and so on. And speaking of going alone as a solopreneur, I would like to ask you if you have help, like if you do outsource some things or you do all the work by yourself, because this is extremely important in my opinion to put an emphasis of the things that we don't actually need to do all the work, even that you are solopreneurs. I actually, I do everything on my own. I do. But that said, so I... I'm the full owner of my content creation agency, but I'm a partial owner for several other businesses. So I'm a partial owner, a 50% owner in a virtual assistant company. So if any of your listeners need a virtual assistant, (laughs) but I think asking for help, there's no shame in that. There is no shame in asking for help. The farther you go along in your solopreneur journey, there are certain things that are more of a time waster for you than their worth. The farther you go along, the more you'll realize just what you can outsource and what you have to keep for yourself. So for me, I know that I will never outsource my writing because that's what I do. And that's what sets me apart from other people who do the same thing that I do. I'm very confident in my writing. I know I'm a good writer. But keeping on track of my calendar meetings or keeping on top of my accounting, all of that stuff, I know that I can outsource. I do I outsource my accounting. That's probably as of right now, that's the one thing that I do outsource. But I definitely encourage other solopreneurs to take a really good hard look at everything they do every day. Study what you do for a week, write down all of the tasks that you're doing, and then make a very simple list. On one side, you have the stuff that you know you cannot outsource. And on the other side, you have everything that you can outsource. And 
once you do outsource these sort of time waster admin tasks that you might not even realize are wasting your time, you'll be able to hone in on creating your systems, on creating your processes, on making the business run even more smoothly so that at the end of the day, you end up working less. And that's, I think, everyone wants that. (laughs) True, and that's a huge thing that you mentioned there because having laid down all the things that you actually do in one week and realizing that you spend a lot of time in things that in reality not making you any money, but in the same time are extremely important to run a business, you realize that, oh, I can focus that time of probably doing things that I actually love in your case, writing, or simply take some time off to rest and actually improve my health and improve my focus for when the actually work is coming up. And yeah, that's a huge mindset shift that a lot of freelancers are facing, especially. And I think that's what sets apart a freelancer from a solopreneur, the fact that you do everything yourself comparing to I actually can outsource this part. I can actually free up my time and be able to pay for thinking or be able to strategize, not only execute on the things that I'm actually good at. And you mentioned something that caught my attention, that you are extremely confident in your writing. And that self-motivation comes from somewhere and it's extremely important for solopreneur. Can you expand more on that and how you keep yourself motivated when things go probably at too much work or any other personal stuff appearing? How do you deal with all that? This is also another kind of very hard lesson that I learned early on is the whole self-motivation aspect of working on your own. You have to have confidence if you want to be a solopreneur. You have to. It's like it's a non-negotiable because at least in the beginning, you are going to be your own coach. You're going to be your own cheerleader. You're going to be the person who's saying, yes, you can do this. I do also want to touch on the importance of having a mentor. I have a mentor and I've had the same mentor for probably four years now. And that is almost like the missing piece of the puzzle for me when I'm feeling un- when I'm not feeling confident, where there's like this client that I really want to land and I'm not sure if I'd be able to do it. I Yes, I can talk to my friends and family about what's going on, but because they're not really in, in the industry, they don't really understand. But my mentor is in the, in the industry. And so when I'm really needing that boost, I always go to them for help. But that said, you need to have a certain level of confidence coming from yourself. And my advice to people who are struggling with that is maybe cliche, but fake it till you make it. Pretend like you're confident. And eventually it will become real confidence. And I think it's also too, to help build that confidence, it's really important to celebrate these small wins. If you land a client that you thought you you weren't going to land, take a moment to sit there and say, you did this. It's a lot of talking to yourself, which sounds funny, but say to yourself, you did this. Like, look at what you just did and just take a moment to appreciate that because I think it's really easy to just go, okay, got this client, want that one next. I want this client, then I want this one and this one and go through the motions of these big stepping stones in your business that you're not even taking the time to really congratulate yourself and really sit there and feel that you did a good job. It's It sounds very small, but it, it's a small action that I think can take can make a very big difference. Definitely. And that's the thing with confidence. If you don't build it in different ways, like you mentioned, I probably will add here that to the small wins, even if you finish a project and 
the client is happy with that, give you a testimonial or a review and ask for those. It's someone talking about yourself, about your work. And even that might sound like selfish, but it's not. It's actually something that will build your confidence. And every client that you land, everything that works your way, just take five minutes at the end of the day and write down the things that happens to you that day. This is something that I wish I knew years ago because it was one of the reasons why I grow quite slowly, simply because I was not taking advantage of these things and start to build my confidence. And I was like, oh, another week without a client or another month without a client. And I was just looking at the negative things and having a mentor, as you mentioned, it's a huge thing to have. Even that is not our per se mentor, maybe it's just a friend that is in the same industry and understand yourself, but try to talk with someone and search for that person that can guide you or at least cheer you up because that can make a huge difference. The way you build your business, it's extremely inspiring because I'm not seeing a lot of people having this patience to take the long road, just play for the future, not just, I need money now, I need to land a client now. Of course, we all do. But with this mindset shift to actually build for the future, I think is the correct way to go. Did you make the plan to do all those things or you were just open to opportunities or how all these things evolved from writing to being part in other firms and so on? If you would have asked me 15 years ago, if I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur, I would have laughed at you. And that was also like another big part of building my confidence. It was actually even having the confidence to say, I am an entrepreneur. I remember a very early conversation that I had with my mentor and he said something along the lines of, yeah, Molly, you're an entrepreneur. And I look at him and I'm like, I'm not an entrepreneur. And he like turns to me and he's like, are you serious? At the time I was in Paris and I was Rather than renting my apartment, I decided to trade English lessons for my apartment. I found this family in Paris. There's a lot of very teeny tiny apartments, like at the very top of the buildings, very small for my American listeners. It's like a dorm room, basically, but it's in Paris and it's cute and you love it and you're just happy to have an apartment. And so I was a student at the time, so I wasn't working very much. And so I needed a cheap place to live, basically. And I managed to convince this French family to let me trade 10 hours of English tutoring per week for my apartment. And so when I'm sitting there saying to my mentor, no, I'm not an entrepreneur, he's like, you trade English lessons for your rent. If that's not an entrepreneur, I don't know what an entrepreneur is. It took me a very long time to feel comfortable. And even now, sometimes I think like anyone else, I fall victim to imposter syndrome where I feel like you're not even, you're not a business owner. Like you're just a writer who has some clients. You don't know what you're doing. It's again, taking a step back looking at what you're doing, maybe from an outside perspective more and saying, oh my gosh, of course you're an entrepreneur. Again, the way that I was able to become a part of these other ventures was people I worked with. They saw that I was smart. They saw that I had good ideas. They ended up inviting me basically to to join their business in, in more of a founder sort of position. So again, it's like, thanks to these relationships that I built, four, five, six, however many years ago, doing something maybe completely different than writing. But I showed what I could do. 
and that paid off 10, 20, 30. Wow. And uh, yeah, that's extremely important, especially because you mentioned that you built those relationships years ago. And in the age of social media, where we actually end up meeting a lot of people online, how you will advise someone that is trying to build their network, is trying to build meaningful relationship, because if it's not a meaningful relationship, it's quite hard to actually transform in something fulfilling. What will be your advice for them? One is very obvious, make the most out of LinkedIn. I've made a ton of amazing connections on LinkedIn. I met you on LinkedIn. Many of my business partners, my now business partners, I met on LinkedIn. Treat LinkedIn as you would Facebook or Instagram. Be active, engage with people. Don't just sit there scrolling through your newsfeed. Like, Take the time to read what people are posting. Start a conversation in that way. I think that's very important. I think if you have networking opportunities wherever you're living, take advantage of them. I am someone who's very shy, timid, reserved naturally. So it's those sort of things are very uncomfortable for me. But I think it's very important to push yourself to do that sort of stuff, especially if you're a solopreneur. Because again, I feel like I keep saying this, but relationships, even if you hear on your own, quote unquote, you need those relationships so that you can build off of them and help people so that they want to help you. So I would say definitely LinkedIn. If you have the opportunity to do networking, there's a wonderful organization called BNI. I think it's Business Networking International. I am on the hunt for a new chapter to join, but BNI is basically, it's a group of local entrepreneurs that come together once a week. And it's basically a referral system. And I know people have had great luck with that. But if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to go to networking events, get on LinkedIn. There are tons and tons of opportunities there. And I think that a lot of people just kind of totally miss the ball with that. And they have their profile, but they don't really use it. I've gotten tons of work from LinkedIn. And I've also made some great friends on LinkedIn. Funny, because for me, LinkedIn will always be extremely important because I met my partner there. But uh, apart from that, it's just, as you mentioned, the amount of meaningful connection that you can make. And thanks to LinkedIn, I was able to launch this podcast extremely fast and having in it one of my dream guests, you know, Chris Doe from the future. And I was like, wow, thanks to LinkedIn, I was able to land him in the podcast. I can do anything. It's so important because Myself as well, I'm an introvert and was quite hard for me to attend in-person events for networking purposes. And even those, when I went, I tried to make the most out of it. Just go outside your comfort zone and try to build these relationships. And a part of building relationships, taking the long-term game, what else helped you landing clients? Because it's one of the struggles that people are facing, especially when they start out, they are really having a hard time landing clients. What worked for you? In the very beginning, and I mean, this is taking things like way back. This was when I was like still doing my master's. But at that point, I knew what I wanted to do. I did a lot of work for free. I know people don't want to hear that, but it can be helpful. And I know a lot of people are not in the position to even do that, but... I also think it's important to say that in the very beginning, when you're getting yourself set up, like I wouldn't be where I am now if it wasn't for the 12 hour days I was working in the beginning, doing my day job, going to school, and then writing content all night until two in the morning. It was very hard, 
But in the moment, what got me through that was imagining the place where I'm at now. So I think that is super important. I stayed in my day job for a little while and was like working nights on my writing and meeting people and all that sort of stuff. Today, when I'm looking for clients, what helps me land clients is again, having the confidence. I think also too, it's important to reach out to the right type of client. Something that someone taught me recently, which I think is a really good point is before you apply for a job, Try to do your research on the company. See how many employees they have. If you can, see if they have funding. See what their budget is. Because I think a lot of people struggle to find clients because the people they're going after may not have the budget or it's something along those sort of lines. So I think it's helpful to really know the person you're going after, like the client that you're wanting to land. Is it even, do they even have the budget? Like in my case, do they have the budget for their marketing? In your case, do they have the budget for the web design? And unfortunately, you might have to let some clients go or kind of maybe come back to it at a later date because it just won't work as kind of funny as that is to say that you are confident in your offer, that you have a very specific offer. I think it's always really helpful if you can niche down as much as possible so that you become this expert in your field. And then that's a lot more attractive to prospective clients. But like everyone else, I also come across those difficulties sometimes too. Landing the client, it's not always easy. Yeah, for sure. And but you touch your on some very important parts, especially that one that a lot of people overlook, like make sure your ideal client has the budget for your type of work, because you cannot help everyone. You cannot work for free forever. And it's good what you say, like, yeah, if you cannot land that first client and you probably you're looking at your ideal client, but your ideal client won't even look at you simply because you don't have that portfolio yet, you don't have those uh, results for others, yeah, offer yourself to work for free or offer yourself to help that ideal client. It's an often overlooked tactic simply because we are maybe too proud to work for free, especially at the beginning. Like I can do everything. Yeah, I want to be paid for you. And as you mentioned, probably it's a, like a luxury for some other people because they don't have, but you did the smart way. Like you stick to your job until you had those laid down and you have your first clients, which is actually the advisable thing to do. I wanted to add something. The reason why I was working for free was because I needed to build up my portfolio. And as much as your confidence is super important. You also need to have this proof that you can do what you're saying you can do. So I needed to have published work that was published online, that was published under my name. And then I needed the social proof. So that's testimonials, that's asking someone to write me a recommendation. And that's obviously very specific for me for content creation. Or if you're a graphic designer, you need to have examples of things that you've designed. And if you're selling product, you need to have people who have tried the product who are saying that it's good. So it can feel like a lot of like steps that you need to take, but it really will pay off in the long run. And if you have that proof, both the published proof and the social proof of people who have already worked with you, then you're in a way better position to attract that ideal client, to attract the gig that you've been hoping to get. Yeah, definitely. And actually use another tactic. I partner with SEO agencies that they were offering web design services, but they weren't building in-house. And I partnered to them and I had a contract with them in which 
I was able to use those inside my portfolio. And that's how I made the switch from gigging on freelancing platforms for like small graphic design work to actually building websites. There are, of course, many tactics that you can apply, but definitely the easier one is to actually do some work for free and build that portfolio and grab those testimonial recommendations fast. I'm glad that you add that. Those that are already successful, they are painting that you should never work for free because you will attract the same type of clients. But actually, if you choose wisely, as you mentioned, actually choose the one client that you want to do with the work for free as your ideal client, not just any person that comes to you is like, oh, I don't have the budget. Can you work for free? No, those type of clients you should avoid indeed, because that type of person will recommend you to the same type of person. But if your ideal clients comes to you or you find that ideal client yourself and they need your services, then try to do that for free and that will help you. But yeah, it's very, it's a very thin line between who you should help for free and who not. Definitely. Totally agree. So speaking of your work, of your writing, what type of writing are you doing and for what type of clients? So I write for B2B, so business to business. I'm usually a part of the marketing team for whatever client I'm working with. I really focus in on project management. So like mostly SaaS, so software as a service, all of the big names, ClickUp, Asana, Monday. I mean, those are my dream clients, my dream hundred list. But I have done some work for a few of them and then some smaller project management firms. In the beginning, I really jumped around a lot. And the more that I've been in this business, the more it's becoming saturated. And now there's the whole AI writing aspect of it. It's, it was very important for me to really choose my very specific niche As I mentioned before, choose your niche and become an expert because that is how you're going to find the clients that pay the best. That's where you're going to find the clients that give you the most consistent work. And that's how you're going to find the clients who really respect you as an expert in your field. At the end of the day, you can't be an expert in everything. You need to choose your field, figure out what you're the best at, and really just lean into that. So, and for me, that was B2B, that was SaaS, that's project management. It's very important indeed. Otherwise, you just talk to everyone and you cannot attract your ideal client. If you're creating content, doesn't matter if it's on your blog or on your social media account, if you are talking about everything, you talk about nothing because you don't attract those that you want to attract. So what type of content are you creating exactly? You're creating content for their marketing campaigns for their blog or the social media? My specialty is long form content. So longer articles that range anywhere from 750 words all the way up to 4,000 words. It's almost always on their website. Sometimes they'll publish it on Medium. I have dabbled in social media marketing content. I prefer to have a little bit more breathing room. So a higher word count to really kind of hone in on whatever topic I'm talking about. It's great to hear because I believe, especially in the cookie-less world, in which a lot of ads won't perform as best, I think inbound traffic and inbound leads for, uh, doesn't matter if you're a freelancer or a business, will be huge. And I actually have a challenge for you in which I would like you to create a strategy for freelancers that want to play the long game to attract their ideal clients to them. They're probably at the 
point where they realize, okay, this is my ideal client. This is the niche that I want to work in. And I want to be able to create content for that ideal client. So I'm able to attract them to me through my blog. I want to start writing. I want to create a strategy around that. What would be few steps they can take to make those first steps to achieve this long-term plan? I know it can be a huge thing, maybe hours of strategizing to arrive that, but I want you to create like a short actionable thing that they can take and put it into practice. So first things first, keywords are your friend. If you want inbound leads to your blog, or if you want inbound leads to your client's blog, I think that every written content creator needs to know SEO, which SEO is search engine optimization. You need to know it because that's how Google finds your work. That's how Google shares your work with the people who are actually looking for it. There are plenty of tools out there. There are plenty of courses out there. There are plenty of YouTube videos out there. I encourage anyone listening to this who wants more inbound leads to their blog to definitely take a course on SEO, to definitely pay for something like ClearScope is probably the most known, well-known service software to use. But something even more simple than that is to think about what question your ideal client is going to ask Google and to build your content off of that. Because organically, that's how people are going to find you. So it's really taking a step back and seeing yourself as your client would and to put yourself in their shoes and to say, what are they going to type into Google? And then just build that content off of that. That's huge. Uh, when you have laid down all those small steps beforehand, knowing your client pain points, frustration, and so on. And if you build the content around that, as you mentioned, like just simply put in your client's shoes and ask yourself what I'm searching now for, what type of problems I want to solve. And those can be the things that make or break your blog. If you don't build content around them, if you just simply create content that doesn't solve a problem, it's fluff. Things don't work that way anymore. And especially now with the latest algorithm update, the helpful content one, if your content is not helpful, pointless. So that's important. And you mentioned ClearScope. There are any other software or tools that you use or recommend to, for those that want to build around their blog, their content strategy? Well, I recommend definitely ClearScope for SEO. There's also Surfer SEO, which is a little bit less expensive than ClearScope. AppSumo is also wonderful as well for SEO. The Neil Patel's keyword searcher is totally free and great. Just Google Neil Patel SEO and you'll find it. And to keep myself organized, you know, I'm a specialist in project management. So of course I use ClickUp for almost everything. I use Trello. I use Asana. Notion is another great tool for keeping organized. I use Slack to communicate with my clients. I find that it's a lot easier to keep track of everything in Slack than it is in email. And I, I, when it comes to writing, I'm pretty old school. I use Google Docs. Definitely recommend Google Docs and not Microsoft Word because of the autosave. I have had so many times I've lost everything because it was on Microsoft Word and I didn't save. And then Hemingway app is also a great tool just for keeping things clear and concise. Those are probably my top tools. 
Yeah, I love them. Probably I used almost all of them <laughs> with the exception of Gravescope. Actually, I hear for the first time Gravescope. I used to use Surfer mm-hmm. and I know that you're an avid reader and even have an Instagram account around book reviews. Can you touch a bit on that and how that mix with your work in any way? So yes, I am an avid reader, self-professed bookworm. I love reading. I can read two, three, four books in a weekend if I have nothing else going on. So I love to read. And it was a really great way actually for me to make friends when I was living in France. I was part of several book clubs. And that's where this idea to create a book review website which is called The Mistress of Books. So it's themistressofbooks.com if everyone, anyone's interested in checking it out. One of my best friends from book club, so funny, one day we had got to the meeting early and we we're sitting there discussing the book, going back and forth. And at one point we kind of look at each other and we're like, we have some really great points. <laughs> we should do something with it. And that has just kind of exploded really. I mean, we started off by doing just book reviews and then we expanded to an interview section where we interview authors. Our site is very female focused. So we hope to kind of show a spotlight on female writers because they tend to be left behind really. I mean, you talk to anyone who studies literature and it's very rare that they ever even cover a female writer. It's almost like an afterthought. So feminism is very important to me. And my website is my little contribution to that cause. For now, it's a total passion project. I make no money with it. But I love doing it because of so many different reasons. I mean, first of all, it's a great way for me to keep track of everything that I'm reading. So it's also a great opportunity for me to be able to publish other people's work. So for those writers who are where I was five years ago, who are searching for a site that wants to publish them, I hope to be that for my contributors. I've met so many people in real life and also just on Instagram. And it's been a wonderful experience for me. I think that's too another thing that's important, especially if you decide to do really make your job, your passion into your job. I think it's really important to continue to do things that are just for fun. Maybe one day I will try to make some money off of my book review website. So I would encourage other solopreneurs who may be in the same position. Maybe you're a solopreneur photographer. Get out there on the weekends, just take pictures for yourself or the same. You could apply it to really any sort of sort of industry. So that's my book review website story. That's beautiful. And it's a powerful advice because having these passion projects that are linked to your work are so often overlooked and they can be amazing. They can, at some point they can turn into an actually full-time income and what can be more beautiful than doing what you love and get paid for it. It's probably an ideal situation, but it's totally possible. And uh, speaking of books and female authors, Can you recommend to our listeners at least three books if you know some that are actually linked to solopreneurship or business? It will be also great. If not, just three books that you highly recommend. Um, So books just for fun. I definitely recommend an author. She's Italian. Her name is Elena Ferrante. She has several books. My favorite is a series called The Neapolitan Novels. It's a quartet. So there's four books. It is the most beautiful book about female friendship that I've ever read. And honestly, I read them over the summer last summer when I was on vacation. And it was like, I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to sit there and read my books. So I definitely recommend that for more fun reading. A book that I would recommend that's more for the entrepreneur, solopreneur, it's called Burnout. And it's also by two female writers, Emily and Amelia Nagoski. And it's 
all about managing stress and how to manage it healthfully. And because I think solopreneurs are really at a high risk of burnout because again, you're kind of out there on your own. You may feel like you have to take responsibility for everything. As we've talked about over and over, over the course of this conversation, the temptation to say yes to everything, to just keep going, you're going to end up burning out at one point. So I definitely recommend reading books like Burnout. And again, having this passion project that is like not related to you earning money, still something that you are super interested in doing. And maybe it does connect back to what you do for work, but having something outside of your daily grind that you enjoy doing, I think is another way that you can try to minimize the risk of burnout. As someone that went to burnout two times now, unfortunately, I totally agree with that approach. And I'll definitely check the book. Thank you so much for the recommendations. And can you please tell our listeners where to find you online if you want to connect or work with you? So you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Molly Sabrier, E-B-R-I-E-R. Or you can find me on my website for my writing business. It's Plume Content, P-L-U-M-E-C-O-N-T-E-N-T.com. You can connect with me there. But I definitely encourage anyone listening to send me a message on LinkedIn. That's awesome. And I'll put the links into the show notes for those listening from a car or something. We wrap up. I would like this time you to create a challenge for our listeners that they can put into practice in less than 24 hours. Probably freelancers or solopreneurs that they try to attract clients to their website. Or it can be not only website, social media or whatever. What you'll challenge them to do in less than 24 hours in order to start this journey. It's kind of like a two-part challenge, but I would definitely challenge them to choose their niche. And again, if you end up not liking your niche, you can always change it, but choose your niche and then take a good hard look at the work you're doing now and try to get rid of at least task, client, gig that doesn't align with that niche. You can be respectful and ending the relationship, but you know, get rid of it. That's wonderful. That will not only free up time, but will actually make room for those that are in your targeted niche and you'll be able to start working with them. And yeah, that's definitely achievable in less than 24 hours. <laughs> Hard, I know. I've been there. I did that recently and it's not an easy fit to get rid of a client. But be respectful, maintain relationships. It can be actually something that turned out to be one of the best decisions that you made. I agree. So thanks so much for the challenge. Thank you so much for coming and taking the time to jump into it so late. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a very nice conversation. Of course, as always, thanks everyone for listening and make sure to check the show notes for all the links to Molly's website, LinkedIn, and the resources that you mentioned and much more. This was your host, Guillaume Arushka with The Nomad Solopreneur. Until next week, Pura Vida! Mm-hmm.